Hey everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. This is part two of our podcast with Andrea Wiley. This is the lecture she gave as part of the James R. Binden Biocultural Anthropology and Health Series, affectionately known as the Binden Series. Without further ado, here's Andrea Wiley. Really see the intellectual antecedents of the biocultural term in the work of Frank Livingstone, who is, of course, famous for his work on how the spread of agriculture in West Africa led to the spread of malaria, which in turn was a selective force that increased the distribution or the rise in the frequency of the hemoglobin S allele, the sickle cell hemoglobin. And this is a very widely used example of human biocultural evolution. And in this case, what you have is culture is perceived as a selective force that shapes biological evolution in human populations. And Livingstone, of course, is also known for being a critique of racial classifications. And this kind of work offered an alternative to what had been a very typical way of describing and understanding human variation, which, of course, was the race concept. And then rushing along to the 1960s, you have, with the Human Adaptability Program, the rise of the concept of human plasticity and the notion that culture acts as a kind of buffer between human biology and the natural environment. In fact, a lot of the early work was at high altitude, where it was thought that culture actually couldn't play this role in buffering hypoxia. So it was an example where we could see a unique connection between a natural environmental feature and human biology that seemed, at least on the surface, to be unmediated by culture. Turns out that's probably not exactly true. But nonetheless, that's where it was in the 1960s. But later on, culture also emerges in this as a stressor, not as much a buffer, but as a stressor, something that could have negative consequences for human biology. Moving up to the 70s, you have the emergence of kind of systems thinking and a lot of new ecological models in which there were these complex feedbacks between cultural and biological domains. And so there would be arrows going everywhere, and of course the arrows went in multiple directions, or like went in two directions. So there were feedbacks between these two domains. In my view, these were really elegant models. I love models, but they were very difficult to operationalize. And I can imagine, maybe Jim, you're thinking of the energy flows model, for example, of, of Brooke Thomas, where there are just arrows going everywhere, but really elegant and, and complex and trying to encompass the whole range of possibilities. Also in the 1970s, you have um, E.O. Wilson coming to the fore with his work on so which he termed sociobiology, which had a very particular meaning, which was about how there were biological foundations for both in evolutionary theory and in mechanism between, again, biology and social behavior. But also in the 1970s were what I call a series of holistic hopes and laments. And so you have in a review piece by Kenneth Bennett and colleagues in 1975 arguing for a biocultural ecology. And what they had to say about it was that it, this field would, quote, ideally seek to transcend the fragmentation inherent in the separation of culture, human biology, and environment ecology. But as a rubric, the term biocultural really does not lend itself to precise definition. It's clearly not intended to encompass every study in which a cultural feature is related to some biological or ecological feature. And then you have from Brooke Thomas and colleagues in the later 70s, anthropology in general professes and attempts to adopt a holistic approach. This entails the study of biocultural similarities and differences between human groups within a historical and evolutionary perspective. 
but in reality, the practice falls short of the goal. So again, here we have biocultural being attached to both ecological models, evolutionary theory, but it's also the case that biocultural seem to be carrying the weight of American holistic anthropology or American forefield anthropology. It was asked to do a lot of work, and there was already a lament in these early days that it really it was not cutting the mustard. It was falling short of its ability to do so. Moving forward to the 90s, we have what I call biocultural redeployed, and there is a reinvigorated discussion of what biocultural could mean and how it might be useful, or evolutionary perspectives as well, how could this be useful in the analysis of health? And this was stimulated in part by some <coughs> comments made by Merrill Singers, to which I responded, and a, a kind of mini-debate evolved around that question. And one of the hopes had been, in at least in those work that I was doing was that there could be some kind of integration between a political and economic approach, which Singer was advocating, and an evolutionary approach. But I think the 1990s are best known for the publication of a book by, edited by Alan Goodman and Thomas Leatherman, Building a New Biocultural Synthesis, which explicitly said that it was about <coughs> political and economic perspectives on human biology. And as you can see, what they, their agenda was to establish a, quote, radical biocultural middle ground. It's not often the middle ground is the radical space, but um, in this case it was. Again, here we have it, to reestablish a holistic anthropology and foster a new biocultural anthropology, one that is nearly 180 degrees different from a biosocial perspective, which they are reading as sociobiology. That is how biology leads to social life and to consider the possibility of a biocultural synthesis that takes into account the complexities and contradictions of social life and how they influence biologies. So again, there's this attempt to reestablish what appears to be a failed enterprise, holistic anthropology, <coughs> but it is also clearly a rebuke to the claims of sociobiology, which again, they gloss as biosocial, which is not actually, I think, that common to, to equate those two things, in American anthropology at least. And they are echoing a critique by the biologist Richard Lewontin and colleagues, in which they argued for a more dialectical approach to research, arguing that, quote, the nature of the society in which we live profoundly affects our biology, i.e. the social goes to the biological and not the other way around, and that organisms do not simply adapt to previously existing autonomous environments. They actively destroy, modify, and internally transform the external world by their own life activities. Setting up biocultural is unidirectional. So you take the analysis, you take social, cultural, political, economic variables of various kinds, and you look and see what their causal effects are on some human biological outcome. That came to be um, associated with the biocultural approach in the late 1990s. Now moving into the 21st century, there is continued discussion about what biocultural should be, it's unfulfilled promise. But what I was intrigued by in 2015 was the fact that although there was a lot of literature on what biocultural should be and a lot of head scratching about, oh, it's not living up to its, its potential, there had actually been no systematic survey of the literature that would <laughs> reveal how biocultural was actually being used by people writing in anthropology. And so I undertook that along with my student Jennifer Cullen and we did a bibliographic analysis of use of the term biocultural in all of the articles that are conveniently published in Anthrosource. They're all the AAA or American Anthropological Association journals, as well as two other large 
four field journals, current anthropology and the annual review of anthropology. And we did this for 15 years, from 2000 to 2014. And in whole, there were 177 articles in this database that used the term. Then we had criteria for what it meant to use it. They couldn't just use it in a bibliographic reference. They couldn't just use it in a quote from someone else. And because none of these journals really had a biological anthropology focus, we also chose a bioanthropology journal, the American Journal of Human Biology, as a comparison. And there were 74 articles from the same time period that used the term biocultural. So what is it? What does, what does biocultural describe? What was interesting in part was in the big sample where you had 177 articles, there were 149 different descriptors, meaning bio, there were 109 different thing, 149 different things that could be called biocultural. And these were very wide-ranging, but you can see what the top ones were in terms of their frequency. So larger font equals more frequent usage. In the big sample, anthropology. So it's being identified as a particular kind of anthropology. And it's an approach, whatever that means, a, a kind of a way into a project or a type of research itself. Okay? Or it's a perspective, a certain way of thinking about the research. Another big term here you see is diversity, and that's a really unique strand of usage that largely comes out of linguistics, and it's primarily used to talk about conservation of language and culture in the context of or in relation to declining biodiversity. So the bio part of biocultural and biocultural diversity is the biology of other species, so it's not human biology, although I think there's some interesting ways in which variation in human biology and and its diversity could also be incorporated. It's a lot of different things. It's, sometimes it's material things, sometimes it's processes. You see a little bit of stuff about integration. You see synthesis or a type of analysis, um, a type of study or research, as you can see. Theory doesn't show up very much. It was really astonishing to me the diversity of the terms that could be used with with biocultural, that, that had biocultural attributes. And I think one of the things that means is that as humans, we imbue the world with cultural attributes, okay? But we also recognize, at least for the living world, that they have some kind of biological aspect to them as well. All right, so what is to be gleaned from that quick overview of that particular project? We didn't find evidence that there seemed to be a shared meaning for biocultural, a shared definition or an established set of criteria that we could use to define it, or a common theoretical framework. There was a frequent focus on health, and there tended to be a strong emphasis on how the social environment could impact human biology. And so while some, like James Calcano, um, have argued that the biocultural approach is, in fact, what, again, here we go, keeps the American, anth American anthropology whole, there's little evidence, I think, that these are being used by any but a small minority of anthropologists, and they're certainly you know, pretty much confined to biological or cultural anthropologists. Second is that you know, I think a question for the future is whether a consensus can be built around what it should mean, but maybe, in fact, it's, it just doesn't lend itself readily to precise definition. Moving forward, then, I have some questions about this. One is that there is a large domain of work in social epidemiology whose focus is how the social environment influences <coughs> some biological health outcome, usually some aspect of health. 
And Nancy Krager is, I think, one of the leading lights in this area. And she has developed this term eco-social to describe that. And so how is biocultural similar to or different from what Krieger is advocating? But more importantly, what do we anthropologists have to offer? Right? We don't want to just, I don't think it's actually very helpful or a good use of our skills to simply replicate the social epidemiological framework. And in particular, one of the things that seemed common was that culture seemed to be defined as socioeconomic status. That that was a measure of culture in some <coughs> way. And I think that that's a somewhat impoverished a way of thinking about culture. Biology, the, the biological outcomes, or even when it was seen as more causal, was often presented without an evolutionary interpretation. I mean, this is the major theory we have for biology. So where is that? I, I think that these are the things that anthropologists can really bring that makes it diff- our work different from that of epidemiologists. We have a more robust concept of culture and a way of operationalizing it that Bill Dresser has been um, instrumental in doing. And we have evolutionary theory, which I think is, you know, can offer different perspectives on health than standard uh, public health interpretation. I happen to believe that we, to use a term like biocultural, really should have some level of bidirectionality to it. I think there should be, I like a feedback loop, and, or at least, even if it's not a feedback loop, some kind of sense that, that influences move in both directions. And so to take us some examples of work from the sample, there are three papers that I think offer a, an interesting possibility. And the question that these papers deal with is how norms, as in statistical modes, right? What is the most common? So statistical modes for human biology influence normative, or what we might think of as cultural statements about how humans should be. So that, and so there were three articles in the sample. One is mine, and I'll talk a little bit more about that today. But also Amanda Thompson and colleagues have written about how Beliefs about how children should grow influences feeding practices, especially in light of concerns about um, overweight among infants. And then Alex Brewis and, and Amber Woodage have also written about trends and stigma around actual changes in human biology, that as rates of <coughs> obesity increase around the globe, how do these cultural valuations of this biological feature shift as well? So what I would like to do is is shift to a discussion of an example of the kind of biocultural analysis that I think has the potential, at least, to push the use of the term into this more integrative direction. In the title of the talk, I use the term biological normalcy, and I have to confess that this term actually comes from me misremembering a term that was used in the George C. Williams Pearl Lecture in 1997 at the Human Biology Association. And he actually used the term medical normalcy to talk about how natural selection did not favor what we might view as, quote, the normal human body. And he described the many ways in which the, quote, design is functionally stupid as a result of the production of the short-sighted trial-and-error process of natural selection rather than by rational planning. There are many ways in which normalcy can be a serious handicap. In other words, normalcy did not equal optimal health or optimal function. 
Now, my interest in biological normalcy is a little bit different from that of Williams. I've also used the term ethnobiocentrism to describe what I'm going to talk about. And so the question we start with is, how is the normal body defined? How do we describe it? I mean, other organisms, right, have type specimens. That's what Artipithecus ramidus looks like. And that goes for both fossil species as well as living species. It's an interesting question in life history theory as well, because the type specimen for most organisms is the adult form. And in fact, for most species, they never achieve the adult form (laughs) because they're dead. Really, the, the juvenile form is the type specimen. But a closely related question to what is the normal human body is what is the healthy human body? Normal, as in the norm, and healthy are often equated. What is normal is subject to cultural interpretation and likely stems from what people observe about common human biological traits, which in turn are used to construct normative views about, of course, this is what human biology should look like. For the past 10 to 15 years, I have been fascinated really by cow's milk is a really unusual food in some human diets, especially those of populations of South Asian and European descent, and the effects of that consumption on aspects of human biology. But in both contexts, it is both in India where I've worked and also in the United States, milk has wide-ranging cultural significance as well in these two dairy cultures. And I'm very interested in people's beliefs about milk because people tend to have very strong beliefs about this particular food. Especially what I'm interested in is what people think it's going to do to them, especially when it comes to children. Why do parents choose to feed their children milk? And how does that ultimately affect their consumption patterns? Humans vary in terms of their ability to produce the gastrointestinal enzyme lactase in adulthood. There's very strong population patterning to this variability. And the basic biology goes something like this. Milk has a unique sugar in it called lactose. Lactose is actually not found anywhere else in the natural world. And lactose is a double sugar. It can't be absorbed on its own. It has to be cleaved by the (laughs) enzyme lactase into its two component sugars. The production of lactase is genetically regulated as far as we can tell. You can't induce it or stop it by continuing or stopping drinking milk. Infant mammals produce a lot of lactase early on in life, and then it declines so that by the time they're weaned, they're really producing none. This is a lovely evolutionarily crafted system because most never sees milk again. It's gone. They're on to other foods. And so why use an enzyme whose sole function appears to be to digest lactose, which is no longer in their diet. There are some human populations who continue to produce lactase throughout life. They are what we call lactase persistent. These are relatively few and far between. They are Europeans, especially Northern Europeans, pastoralist populations of East and West Africa, as well as those living in Central and Northern South Asia. So the minority of humans are lactase persistent. The vast majority are lactase impersistent. And I'm going to use those two terms for good reason, as you'll see. Another term that you're probably familiar with is lactose intolerance. And that is a situation wherein if you drink milk and you are lactase impersistent, you are very likely to have a variety of gastrointestinal symptoms that are quite unpleasant. So that's a more clinical phenomenon as opposed to lactase persistence and impersistence which is understood at the genetic level. And again, the alleles for lactase persistence appear in European populations, in West African and East African pastoralist populations, in 
northern South Asian populations. And what's interesting, of course, is that the alleles for lactase persistence map on very tightly to lactase persistence phenotypes. So the expression of reduced lactase activity in adulthood, they map on very closely to having a long history of dairying. And they also map on to ideals about milk as a food, or at least dairy products of a food. And that probably co-evolved with the subsistence practice and with the biological foundation for milk consumption throughout life. What is also interesting, I think, about this is that these beliefs about milk as a everything from, you know, it's nature's perfect food to, ah, this disgusting, nasty stuff. Why would you even imagine drinking such a thing? The late anthropologist Marvin Harris was so struck by this, and he thought that this was really a profound axis of cultural variation. So he divided the world up into the lactophobes and the lactophiles, those who fear and those who love milk. The formative studies that demonstrated population variation in milk digestion in adulthood actually came from some studies and incarcerated populations in Baltimore who voluntarily complied to have intestinal biopsies to see what their lactate status was. And what they found is that in the sample of African-American and European-derived men, that the majority of the African-Americans didn't have any lactase activity as adults, but less than 10% of the European-Americans had that phenotype. What they found is that individuals who, were, who didn't have the lactase activity in adulthood were much more likely to have lactose intolerance when they were given a milk challenge, whereas the largely European-derived populations had no evidence. Those who had lactose intolerance didn't show any evidence of, of any other pathology in their guts. But prior to that, the understanding had been prior to the 60s that humans all drank milk and they all could digest it. This is normal. I think clinicians and nutritionists in the United States worked under the assumption that everyone could and certainly should drink milk. And anyone who experienced any negative symptoms had some underlying pathology. And we just needed to look at their guts and we would be able to find what was wrong with them. So the normal human physiology included the capacity to digest milk throughout life. And this made sense to people who were, in fact, largely of European descent. After all, they didn't have any trouble drinking milk. And so this idea that everyone should drink milk and have the digestive biology that allows for it without unpleasant symptoms resulted in this kind of belief in the superiority of a particular biology and a set of cultural practices surrounding that, including milk consumption. So we understand that lactase persistence is the global norm at this point. There are lots of other studies from around the world's populations that showed that. But I I think that even, you know, here in 2016, lactase and persistence in the United States is still pathologized. And that's evident in the language that is used to talk about it. So one way of talking about it is to call it adult-type hypolactasia. Okay, you've got too little lactase. Or you have primary lactase (laughs) deficiency. You are deficient in this enzyme. This is a quote from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Approximately 70% of the world's population has Lactase deficiency, and then they talk about the American Gastroenterology Association has this as their definition of lactase impersonation, a shortage of the enzyme lactase, which is normally produced by the cells that line the small intestine. For most people, lactase deficiency is a condition that develops naturally over time. We have pathology that emerges. And here's, this is a peculiar one. From the American Academy of Family Physicians, lactose malabsorption is a normal physiological pattern, and that there is speculation 
that lactase deficiency is the normal or natural state, and the persistence of significant lactase activity in northern European populations is the abnormal mutation. But the most common form of lactase deficiency is primary adult hypolactasia. So they've got it all in there, right? And so I'm kind of confused thinking around this. Now, my friends at the National Dairy Council have a set of terms. They like the term lactose maldigestion. And there's a subtle but important difference here. If you define things in terms of lactose, that implies that you're consuming it. Right? You can't have lactose maldigestion if you're not consuming it. But since the assumption is that everyone is consuming milk, then you can have these terms. So when you consume milk, you are maldigesters. But they, of course, say, oh, no, 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 not so common, right? It's overblown, it's a problem. Most people can consume milk. And then in a really bizarre set of articles, they have argued that minorities in the United States need to overcome this burden of lactose intolerance and that this is a central cause of health disparities in this country because of the importance of dairy products to health. And then the old DGAs, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, um, in 2010, they described lactose intolerance once again in deficiency form. That language is actually gone in 2015, so that's encouraging. And there's actually no statement about it. It's just if you've got lactose intolerance, drink something else. What I find interesting, I don't know if any of you remember the pyramid. The dairy had its own little section, and it included cheese and all kinds of things. But now dairy's been moved off the plate which is interesting because it means it's in addition to the food you're eating. But also in a glass, milk is much more likely to generate problems for individuals who are lactase and persistent. Because when you make yogurt or cheese, the lactose is removed or broken down into lactic acid. So on some level, this is reiterating this sense that really you should be drinking milk as opposed to eating cheese, even though they don't pathologize lactose and lactase and persistence in these new guidelines, the recommendations are at odds with a practice that would enable greater <coughs> consumption. It's of no surprise that anti-milk groups, like the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, <laughs> has, has used this anthropological understanding to challenge the dietary guidelines that basically assert that milk is an essential part of the diet. It doesn't surprise us that milk shows up in the dietary guidelines for the United States or in other European countries. There's been this kind of globalization of what I call nutritionism. These dietary guidelines are really all beginning to look alike, and milk is an inherent component to all of them. So milk is now increasingly globalized as a food, and again, what I've dealt with in other publications is, you know, why is China, which has a very high frequency of lactase and persistence, or Southeast Asia, um, why have these countries really taken on milk with gusto? One of the ways that happens is through school feeding programs that clearly have a message. That is that if you drink milk, you're going to grow. That is this seemingly intuitive notion that milk consumption will make you grow, especially in height. This is also evident in advertisements for milk. China is an interesting example because you have explicit government support of increasing milk consumption with language around this is going to make our population grow, not in demographic size, but in physical size. And that will help us make up for past growth deficits. And we will essentially be able to achieve the size and read political and economic power of European countries by achieving European body sizes that were obviously built by milk. And an assumption there that those two things go together. 
One of the things that I'm interested in is the fact that parents may be inclined to feed their children milk with the specific goal of enhancing their height, since height itself tends to be associated and is very clearly associated, particularly in kind of middle-income and lower-income countries, with socioeconomic status. And across the world, it clearly correlates with political and economic power. And I think it seems rather intuitive for a variety of reasons that milk consumption should contribute to child growth. Milk is, after all, produced by maternal mammals to facilitate uh, the very rapid growth that occurs during infancy when infants are consuming only milk. And milk has a variety of things in it beyond nutrients that probably facilitate milk. So it seems pretty obvious that milk, especially when from a giant cow, right, should enhance child growth. Milk is a, drinking is equated with the growth of a particular type of body, one that is tall or large. This is evident in growth standards, which are norms for how children should grow. And actually, this issue became the rationale for the WHO, the World Health Organization, instituting a study that led to new growth standards. Standards are about how children should grow. And the norm, the normative standard was American children who were, again, being fed cow's milk formula. So my question is, can we extend this to childhood? Does the same pattern hold for older children? Do our current growth standards for older children, which are actually still based on U.S. children, what does growth look like in the absence of milk consumption? And it turns out that that's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. And that's because, especially in the U.S., Children who don't drink milk tend to be those who are allergic to milk or who have some other problem. But if they are allergic to milk, they probably have other allergies. They are often treated with steroids as a result. And steroids are well-known growth suppressors. And so it's difficult to get a nice unbiased sample of children in the United States who don't drink milk and compare them to those who do. Doing this in other contexts, you want to make sure that you've got a healthy set of kids. But again, milk drinking is becoming so globally normal and normative that it, this actually turned out to be a very difficult thing to do. So my work in India, we have a lovely cohort with milk consumption data from mothers all the way from the prenatal period all the way through six years of age when we last saw these children. I just pulled out the two-year-old data. And if we look at height for age by milk consumption category, indeed we see that the milk drinkers are taller. And generally what you see in observational studies is the kids who drink more milk are taller. But the problem arises in that if parents are looking at their children and going, you're short, you're shorter than I want you to be, shorter than expected, what am I going to do? I'm going to feed you more milk. Kids who are growing well or who are at an expected size from parents' perspectives or pediatricians' perspectives, parents might not be as aggressive about feeding their children milk. And so I think what that does is it confounds the interpretation of these kinds of analyses. Because you can't tell what is cause and what is effect. For example, here, kids who drank very little milk are actually taller, statistically, than kids who drank more. Okay, so at this end of the spectrum. So what to make of that? And so I think this is where anthropologists have a role, right? Let's understand the cultural logic behind parents' beliefs about what this food is going to do to their children. So I don't think we can take these sorts of results 
at face value. When you think about the milk example, we start with animal domestication and dairying in some populations, presumably leading to consumption of dairy products and, and evolution for the alleles for lactase persistence, perhaps related to cow's milk's um, effects on the human life history. Maybe you get more rapid sexual maturation. For As a result of the spread of alleles for lactase persistence, norms appear that see this is normal. This is what humans do. This is what humans look like. And others, later on, are perceived as you know, not normal or pathologized. You also get a positive evaluation of dairy products as food, and dairy consumption itself becomes normal. It's normative and modal. You add to this institutional supports for the dairy industry and milk nutrition. The, dairy, the National Dairy Council in this country is incredibly powerful. You also have, something I didn't really talk about, but biomedical interventions to bring lactase and persistent individuals into the fold. So providing lactate tablets, for example, exogenous lactase, or trying to get them to change their behavior, drink a little bit of milk throughout the day, and you'll be just like the rest of us who are lactase persistent. And then ultimately, what we have seen over the course of the past couple of decades is the globalization of lactase persistence norms, globalization of norms about body size, <coughs> global globalization of milk drinking is a normative status. To wrap up with this idea of biological normalcy, local human biologies are the product of social forces. We've got the social leading to the biological, including those that alter the course of human genetic evolution. And local human biologies also inform people's understanding about what quote, normal human biology looks like, and that can lead, especially in a biomedical context, to the pathologizing of others as deviant or pathological or not normal, even if that evidence suggests that those modes aren't globally shared. And this gets elaborated in various cultural scripts as normative ideals for both biology in terms of you know, how tall humans should be, um, associated behaviors, milk drinking, and when attached to politically and economically important institutions, like the USDA, the National Dairy Council, etc., these normative views become entrenched and solidified and manifest in subsidies and programs to promote milk, research funding, school feeding programs, the WIC program, etc. And then these get exported as part of a package of Western practices and idealized tall bodies that are created by milk drinking. So I offer this as an example of the type of biocultural work in which I think there is a bi-directional exchange of information and influence that is informed by both evolutionary theory and an appreciation of culture. I'm eager to hear your thoughts, so thank you so much. This has been the Sausage of Science. We are a production of the Human Biology Association Publicity Committee. Thank you for listening.